Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Ismail's Ghosts, the latest from French director Arnaud Deplachin, is about a filmmaker whose life is upended when his wife Carlotta, who disappeared 20 years earlier, returns. Featuring brilliant performances from Mathieu Amalric, Charlotte Gainsbourg, and Marion Cotillard, the film is part farce, part melodrama, but ultimately about the process of creating a work of art and all the madness that requires. Ismail's Ghosts is now playing here at the Film Society, and the director joined us for a Q&A on opening night. Let's go to that now. I want to start by just simply addressing the, the fact that there are two versions of this film. There was another film, another version of this film, a shorter version that was shown uh, last year at the Cannes Film Festival. And if you could just talk about that, just to kind of get that straight. This is the version, this is the film, what you just saw. Yeah, as we already discussed it, uh, sometimes you and I, you know, I don't believe in uh, some th- anything like a director's cut. You know, there is a film period, you know. So this is the film that I edited. And after that, thinking about it twice, you know, with the, the French distributor and the, the French producer, uh, we thought it could work, you know, in France to have a French version of it, which would be shortened. And, uh, and that we would release the two versions in the same time in France, which was possible in France, but not in other countries, you know. And... Uh, so we did go for it, and it worked out. So for, for the audience, it was quite simple, you know, because if you were going in a hard house, you had the, the, the full version of it. And if you are going into a big theater, you, you have the shortened version. That way we could save once one screening a day, and we were earning good money, you know. So that was the French trick. And so, you know, some of them, you know, were quite proud about this French trick, but I remember you know, meeting this friend of mine, Larry Gross, the scriptwriter, who told me, my dear Arnaud, in terms of American storytelling, this French version is a nonsense. I think I do agree with Larry Gross. Yeah, yeah. okay. Good. <laughs> um, I remember when we were talking about this, when you were, were thinking about the idea of someone running away from their film, yeah. and also of the, the idea of um, the wife returning from the dead. And I just wanted to just start that as a way of discussing, you introduced the film by saying that there were many different stories that yeah. were, that happened in this film and many different kind of pathways and points of entry. And so how, um, I, I just want to use that as a way of um, discussing how the story developed the way that it did. In the, the script writing process? Yes. I'm wondering if I ask you to check, you know, your question, but I think I think I got it, you know. So I, I had this idea about a guy escaping to his shooting station, you know, and that I would have the life of Ivan Dedalus, diplomat, and you you will never know if he's a saint or a double agent, if he's a spy or an idiot, you know, or if uh, you know, you don't know. And so you would have just bits and pieces of it told, you know, by uh, the, the, the 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 director of the film. Who escaped, you know? But why is he escaping to his uh, shooting session? You know, I didn't know why, you know, and that's where the the character of Carlotta appeared. 
you know. I remember the, the very day I, I wrote uh, three lines. Don't be afraid, it won't be that long. It was just three lines that I showed to my producer. I said, okay, I have a film. And he said, okay, could you show it to me? And it was just written, by the way, uh, Ismail still doesn't like water. And the answer of the other woman was, how do you know that? Oh, because I'm his wife. You know, and here I was, you know, the, the woman disappeared during 20 years and she's back. When this guy who thought that he would be an eternal widower suddenly was offering to himself the the, a second chance, you know, and so that's why he escaped to the island and that the second part of the film in the attic, you know, in Roubaix. Now, the name Carlotta and is... <laughs> <laughs> for you film lovers out there, for those of you who've seen Vertigo, Vertigo, um, that's a film directed by Alfred Hitchcock in the late 50s, um, but, it's, but it's a film that's very, very important to you in a number of, in a number of ways. And, so, and, also, and in the score, there's an evocation of, of the score of Vertigo as well. Um, and that's something that, in fact, maybe haunts this in, the, in a very particular way, but your other films as well. To talk about your relationship to that film, to to Vertigo, Vertigo. Yes. I think uh, you know few few. I don't know if it's the best film of Hitchcock or not. I don't know if it's the best film in the world or not. You know, but I know one thing for sure is that uh, Vertigo is depicting something true about human uh, human beings that you can't depict on a stage and that you can't depict in a novel. You can't just depict it on screen. It's the fact that twice the same actress will play two characters, twice she's alive, and that to me it would be the definition of a man on screen that is this impossibility to save the beloved, you know, and, and, and being unable to save the beloved from death, you know, so you, you can't save her. And this inability makes you a man. It's not something powerful, it's a lack of, of power which makes you a man, you know. And this, uh, the character of this eternal widower with uh, Jimmy Stewart, and I love the fact that in Vertigo, the character is already a widower or mourning something. You don't know what he's mourning. It's not the stupid accident he had on the roof, you know. He's already regret. Always in his life, a woman died and he wasn't able to fight for her. You know, and so there, that, that was uh, the depiction of the character of Ismail. Um, I have, I have, I guess, a question and a follow-up question. Well, the question is, um, how did you do the casting? And the second question I have is, um, I have a, a friend that's a French actor, and how would they um, send you their uh, material? <laughs> so two. My answer to the second question first is easy. You know, I, I meet everyone. I just meet everyone when I'm making a film. Plus, I'm quite a faithful guy. You know, I'm always working with the same film company. So each time, you know, which is why not production. So each time that I'm making a film, it's written in newspapers, you know, in the professional newspapers. And so you just call the production company and he or she will meet me, you know, because that it is that easy. You know, it's it's not complicated at all. And uh, on the cast of on this film, it was the perspective was slightly different because, 
you know, the previous film I just made was called My Golden Days, and it was with absolute beginners. And, you know, it was people who never appeared on the screen before. The, the, the two heroes were 17 and 18 when they did the movie with me. So, you know, and the, the, this film, My Golden Days, was about a first love. So I thought it would be nice, you know, to depict a story about the last love, you know, last possibility, the last chance to offer love, you know, in, in your life. And instead of going for absolute uh, uh, anonymous actors, you know, I thought this, I would like to create a film would, which would be large enough to welcome movie stars. But I had no idea, you know, I'm not able when I'm writing to, to, to write for a character, you know, I, I, for, for an actor. You know, I just depict characters, pure characters, you know, characters who are bigger than life, you know, and with scenes that you can't act because they are so complicated and so tricky, you know, in their writing. So that's, that's why I need not to think about an actor when, while I'm writing it, you know. But one day the producer was harassing me with questions, etc. And, you know, saying, hey, yeah, okay, come on, now speak the names, please. And, uh, and I said, of course, you know, there is one actress who would be perfect in the part of Sylvia, you know, and Charlotte Gainsbourg. You know, I, I know Charlotte Gainsbourg. You know, I want to make a film with her since Les Frontées, which was her first film, you know. Um, so from time to time with Charlotte Gainsbourg, you know, I'm, I'm send, I was sending her postcards each time I loved the movie with her, you know. Just, we know each other vaguely, you know, so to tell you how great she was, etc. And so we had this discussion with the producer, and when I was back home, you know, on my email, I had an email from Charlotte Gainsbourg saying, okay, I know we missed each other since uh, more than 15 years, so when do we make a film together? Okay, I had one part, you know, I had one part. And after that, I always been fascinated, you know, with the, 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 the career, which is so strange, of Marion Cotillard who really reinvented herself with La Vie en Rose and who offered to herself this possibility of a second chance, which was the theme, the main theme of my film. And, you know, and I needed an actress who would, be, who would have this ability of create myth, who to, 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 be, to, to become a myth. But what I love with Carlotta is the fact, the fact that she's not mythical at all. She's a myth. She dis disappeared during 20 years. But when she arrives, she stinks because she's dirty. Uh, she has her two feet on the ground. She's real. You know, when she's dancing, she's real. She's like a young girl of 11 years old. You know, she's like a young dog and she's full of energy and she's not mysterious with veils or whatever. She's just, you know, just that, that's the scene when she's na naked, you know, she's just simply naked, and period. You know, she's not a myth. And I thought that uh, Marion Cotillard, perhaps if she became so popular in America, it was because she had this ability to create myth and to quit them as soon as she's bored with them. Mm. You know, she can be, you know, in all these big American films where she's wonderful and suddenly you can see her in the Dardenne's movie, and the next film, you don't know where you will see her. She's Lady Macbeth. And the following film, she will be in rock and roll. You don't know where you will find her, you know. Mm. So I thought she would be a perfect cast. And the idea now of these two women who are such great artists, but so different, to have the two of them in the same frame, it was an absolute dream for a filmmaker. Mm. So that's why I was so happy to welcome them. And let's remember that she's in your 
second feature and third film, Comment je me suis disputé. My yeah, but she life. was it's she a was a different. Part. Yeah, very small. It was her first appearance on screen, and she was playing the Holy Spirit, which yeah. was difficult to play. You yes. know, and uh, and she was giving me a great performance. But she was a different woman because she doesn't stop to reinvent herself. Yes, and uh, and that's why you know uh, we never spoke about that actually mm -hmm. on on the set. Mm. Mm. Hi there. Um, what fascinated me. Fascinating me the most about this film was Sylvia's character being an astrophysicist or an astronomer. Can you um, explain why you chose her profession to be that in the film? Thank you. Why, why is Sylvia's character an astrophysicist? I like two things about that, uh, but perhaps you, you will help me, you know, to translate. Is you know, you know, when I'm writing, I, I, I write to have, I'm trying, you know. I'm, just trying to have good, good punchlines. You know, I'm thinking about Seinfeld and I'm trying, if I have a good punchline, you know, I, you know, the film will be better. Hill. You know, Notting Hill, obviously. Yeah, but Seinfeld, there is more punchlines. You know, I love Notting Hill, <laughs> but you know, Seinfeld is, you know, more efficient yeah. on that level. Yeah. You know, and I thought, Elle a la tête dans les étoiles. She has her hair, her head in the uh, stars. You know, and you know, so to, to, to me, it, it was depicting, and I love the fact that he was a filmmaker and she was a scientist. And so they belong to two different worlds. And also I loved, it, it allowed me, you know, to have these small scenes. You know, you, you have all this allusion, you know, to the religion, the fact that she's a Protestant. And I love the scene where, which is a, a, a memory of, of Ismael when he's remembering the very night where he was insulting God and the stars, and when she was s slightly reluctant, you know, so the scientist believes in God and the filmmaker doesn't, you know, so there was a new opposition between these two characters, and I thought it was lovely. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. We enjoyed the film very much as we've enjoyed all of your previous ones. Uh, I, you mentioned religion, and I was curious about the, uh, the fact that Carlotta and her father uh, were Jewish, and there was a backstory with the father, I, I guess, having fought in the resistance. Um, could you explain why you thought that, that this was important for the development of the film? I always thought about, each time that I'm thinking about this character that uh, we invented, Matthew and I, on Kings and Queen, we was uh, already called Ismail, that Ismail, in my mind, for your American ears, Ismail, you will hear Melville, obviously, and Mobedic, you know, I guess. Yeah, but for my French ears, you know, Ismail means I'm not Israel, you know, I'm Catholic, I'm Christian, you know, I don't, I don't belong to Israel, so, but I'm just the brother of Israel, you know, so to me, it belongs to that character, the fact that friendship, you know, between non-Jews and Jews, you know, so, which is a, an important thing for me and one of the reasons I like friends, you know, it's, it's a, this friendship between Jews and, non, and, and Christians, you know. And so I thought it gave a nice color. You know, I, I like to film, to film characters who are different one from each other, you know. I like to have a Catholic like Ismael, a Protestant like Sylvia, and a bad Jew, you know, like, uh, like Carlotta, and, uh, and a Jew a little more relevant like uh, Henri Blum. You know, plus I was thinking about that scene, you know, which is to me one of the very central part of the movie, which is the scene in the airplane. 
you know, where suddenly the, you have this trip to, to Tel Aviv. And when you have this guy who used to be famous, who used to be resistant or whatever, etc. And the scene starts on a comical register, you know, and so, so level, you know, it's, it's funny to see him insulting the, the waitress, etc., etc. And then the scene starts to be a little bit bitter and then sad, and then because he doesn't understand the world any longer, you know, because now new tragedies appear as terrorism or whatever. And so this pathetic, you know, so the scene starts in a funny way and ends, you know, in a pathetic way. And I don't think it would work out if the character was not Jewish. Ismail is also the name of the androgynous nephew that's behind bars in Fanny and Alexander by Bergman. No? Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. In Fanny Alexander, the, 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 the sort of angel, the ambiguous character yes. played by a woman is called Ismail. Yeah. 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 I love this film. Yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Right there. And then in the back. Hi, Arnaud. Thank you very much for the film. Uh, first question, how long have you been writing the script? And uh, the second question, which is connected to this, um, the film is so complex that it's, um, I feel like my intellect is not capable enough to fully grasp what, what you're trying to say. Therefore, I'm wondering, were you concerned when you were making a film that people will not understand the message or it will, it's going to be lost somewhere in the middle or distorted? First question, I think that uh, the writing process, one year and a half, two years, more than that, because the idea was becoming be, uh, before that, you know. So some ideas were, you know, I have them, you know. You know, it's between one year, how? Yeah, yeah one year. But there, there was some material which was coming for previous writing, you know. So I, I can't really answer to the, that, that part of your question. One of my big anxiety about, and I will answer to your second question, is. Uh, I, will, I, I could answer on, on, uh, in, with two ways. I will try to, 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 to go for the two ways in a brief time. You know, one way is my biggest anxiety is the fact that today the films are shown on TV, sold on DVD, shown you know, through the internet, etc., etc. And I'm awfully scared about one thing, is that if you would be bored the second time that you look at the movie. So I'm trying to hide small details in my films. That way, the second time you'll see it, you will find it more interesting. So perhaps is it why you know you thought you know it's going to, you know too fast or you know or in too many ways or etc. That's why I'm trying on each film to invent a new structure and to try to invent a new way of doing some storytelling. After that, as I told you, and the second way of answering to your second question would be, you know, I like and I'm not able to pronounce it in English, I like to build, I liked to, to build this film like a labyrinth. So sometimes I guess you're lost, but so my job and my pleasure is that you can be lost from time to time, but that I will always hold you by the hand to drive you to the very last scene where Charlotte Gainsbourg is pregnant, you know, and the pregnancy story and the story about the brother. So. 
it's very simple feelings going through strange paths, you know. So I hope that the tale is complex enough to enjoy it, the complexity, and that I will hold you by the end to drive you safely until the, the very conclusion. Hi. Is the Bloom character based on Claude Landsman? <laughs> and if so, were you mentored by him in any way? And then pass the microphone to your left. There's a question right next to you for the next one. So. I know Claude Landsman. He's my mentor. Uh, you know, I was saying that uh, I loved Fanny and Alexander. I wouldn't be a filmmaker if I didn't see Fanny and Alexander at the age where I discovered it, and if I didn't see Shoah at the age I discovered it, you know. To me, they are the two films which are still enlightening me. You know, so life being so generous, you know, we became friends, you know. So, you know, for sure the character uh, can make think about Claude Lanzmann, you know. Strangely enough, life has been really so generous, you know, I can think also, you know, what is it? other directors, you know, it's, uh, but I think that ultimately, <clears throat> is it a, a portrait of Fred Wiseman? Because I know him too, you know, you know, I, do, I don't know, I'm lost, you know, amongst all these names, you know, but so I'm sure that in some way of being brash, the character can remind me Claude, but on other ways, I think that, uh, and it's a very cinematic experience, the film is a portrait of Laszlo Zabo, the actor impersonating the part. I think that ultimately on screen what you can see are portraits of the actors who are playing the parts, you know. What I mean, it can sound like an excuse or it can sound very intellectual, but it's not. A kid can understand that, you know. A kid is saying, you know, I'm going to see a film uh, with Marilyn Monroe. And you never ask to the kid in which part. You know, because who cares? You go and see Marilyn Monroe. So when you go and see Claude, Lan when you go and see, are you going to see Claude Lanzmann? No, actually, the frailty, you know, the broken voice, the humble attitude, the 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 the, the, the ambiguity belongs to Laszlo. So I don't know. I still don't know if it's a portrait of Claude Lanzmann or the actor playing the part of Claude Lanzmann. Thank you for a very dense tale. Um, I agree with you that there are many characters in the, in the movie and there are many themes and I'm wondering whether you could share a little bit of what, about what made you write about loss and disappearance. Just checking. Est-ce que vous pourriez nous parler de, du thème de la, la perte et, et de la disparition because there was, you know, you, you remember that scene and I hope it's funny when we are looking at it. I mean, I, I hope it just sounds like a joke, you know, between the two perspectives, between the two paintings, you know, the Italian paintings and the Dutch painting, you know, and they don't fit, you know, they, they, they don't fit. Two perspectives which don't fit. And there are two disappearances in the movie, you know, one is the disappearance of the brother, Ivan, who disappeared in other, in other parts of the, of the world and the disappearance of Carlotta, which is much more tragical. So you have one comical side of it, which is the fact that the brother is missing, and you have one tragic part, which is that the spouse is missing. And I guess, we are speaking about influences, you know, I guess that uh, sure, Vertigo has been a great influence, but there is one chapter in Shabbat Theater, the novel by Philip Roth, 
which always rolled in my mind since I read the book when it was published in American, which is one of my favorite, perhaps the most outrageous book of Philip Roth, therefore my most favorite book of Philip Roth, you know. And which also inspired Kings and Queen, the, yeah, the section, yeah, yeah, section yeah, yeah. of Kings and Queen. Yeah, and, uh, and I, I think I always can remember this chapter where the hero Shabbat can see his wife disappearing, you know, and I thought it's so great in the novel, so I would have to tell this tale, I would have to tell this tale in a different way if I was adapting it for a screen, you know, so, and it gives what you just saw. But it's true that this idea that, that you can't, today, you know, today in the modern world, that you can't bury a corpse is something which is haunting me, but I don't know for which reason. First, uh, th thank you for this beautiful and thought-provoking film. I thought it was um, such an interesting and fascinating choice to hand over the narration at the end to the character of Sylvia. Um, and it was just surprising. And I wondered if you had any um, comment on that. And I wondered if the shorter version also ends the same way and also a very del deliberate breaking of the wall there. Yeah, actually, the, I, I love that. There is one thing that I love in in the in that scene is uh, the ambiguity of it. You know, mo most of the audience, uh, of the people in the audience, all uh, oftenly, you know, uh, very often are saying to me, "It's a happy ending," but there is quite an ambiguity. You know, because in a way, in order to have a child, she has to quit her brother. So. Is it a happy news or, bad, or cruel news, you know, because she has to kill her brother, you know, in order to, to make a move and to have a second chance. So there is an ambiguity and there are tears in, in the acting of Charlotte, which are beautiful to, 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 to film. And, uh, and we didn't know until the very last moment, you know, the, 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 the very few minutes before the shooting, if Charlotte would look at the camera or if, she, if I would film her this way or that way. We didn't know, we didn't know, you know. Things are arriving just not by chance, you know, but I can smell it, you know, I can smell it, you know, at the very last moment I thought it's better if she's speaking straightly, you know, to you, you know. And we filmed that scene, and that scene which is a happy news, you know, with the, you know, I didn't add the bells which are ringing when she's saying I'm pregnant, you know, it's just because we were shooting just nearby a church and nearby a school. So we had the, the kids yelling, you know, outside and the, the bells and I couldn't go to the priest and to say, please cut your bells, you know. He wouldn't have accepted, you know, so I had to, to deal with it, you know. And so, but the scene was so sad in the same time that it was so happy that I had to, had to add uh, a last shot that we improvise on set, which is more, 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 you know, and the two of them having sex and saying more, more fiction, more kids, more love, more, more anything, more work, you know, and so the, 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 that was the, the, the ultimate conclusion that we added just as an impro at the very last moment of the shooting. And you're working on something, you're preparing a new film, no? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's always good news, but we yeah. don't want to talk about it, right? Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, Thank you very you. much, everybody. Thank you very much.
The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.